as executive director at the Harrison Neighborhood Association, I really make an effort to prioritize what it is that we hear from community and to think about the practical ways that we can move into asset-based organizing and then maintain principles and values of sort of old-school community, right? When there is someone that was hungry, there are many generations of people who would get up and would, would make food for the entire block and sometimes the entire neighborhood so that the kids can eat. When people were out of work, there was always someone who was willing to open their doors and find an odd job to, to help someone put food on the table. And we've really gotten away from that, I think, as a country. And so my passion is, is, is really rooted in national policy, international policy, and public health, understanding that when community steps forward and leads the development of our neighborhoods, the development of our blocks, then everyone benefits. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Hi there, and welcome to Infinite Earth Radio, where each week we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. My co-host, Renice Miller-Travis, is out doing valuable community work, so I will be flying solo today. Before I get to today's guest, I want to acknowledge you, the members of our audience. It has been six short weeks since we launched this podcast, and we want to thank you all for being a part of this and for the overwhelmingly positive response we are getting to the show. In the very brief time we have been live, nearly 200 of you have rated and reviewed our show and generated more than 7,000 downloads on iTunes alone, which has propelled us to the top of new and noteworthy in multiple categories in iTunes. We are not a big media company with a big marketing budget. We are just a small group of folks committed to building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. We are in this for the long haul, but the positive response to the show in the first six weeks has definitely exceeded our expectations. We want to thank you all for your support and constructive feedback. We're new at podcasting, and we know that we have significant room for improvement, but we are fully committed to continuously improving the show and providing our listeners with great content and a great listening experience. So we hope you'll stay with us and help us build this podcast, as well as a community and a movement for quality, healthy, sustainable neighborhoods, and living conditions for everyone, regardless of income or race. We more than welcome any feedback that you're willing to share about the show, so just drop us an email at infiniteearthradio at skio.com. That's infiniteearthradio, all one word, lowercase, at skeo.com. Okay, let's get to today's show. Our topic today is how do we move from good intentions with regard to equitable development and create actual process tools that will ensure that during the process of development, particularly when public funds are involved, that the needs and goals of existing local residents are first heard and understood and then incorporated into the development plan. Our guests today have developed just such a tool. Joan Van Halle is the coalition organizer 
at the Alliance for Metropolitan Stability, a coalition of grassroots organizations that advances racial, economic, and environmental justice in growth and development patterns in the Twin Cities region of Minneapolis. Sean Pierce is the executive director of the Harrison Neighborhood Association, which works to create a prosperous and peaceful community that equitably benefits all of Harrison neighborhoods, diverse racial, cultural, and economic groups. Uh, Joan and Sean, thank you both for being here, and let's just dive right in. So your session at the New Partners for Smart Growth Conference is titled Beyond Talk, a Tool for Planning and Evaluating Equitable Development Projects and Plans. Specifically, your session is about the Equitable Development Principles and Scorecard Tool created by Twin Cities community leaders to ensure that the principles and practices of equitable development, environmental justice, and affordability are applied in all communities as they plan for economic development and wealth creation that benefits everyone. So let's start with why such a tool is or was necessary. Mm. Well, I think the, the short of it is that over the years, we, we, know, we now have equity, but we've also had this multiculturalism phase, diversity, et cetera. And in all of that, particularly community-based groups that are rooted in justice can spend a lot of time in back-and-forth conversation negotiations and can tend to do so much of that that we find ourselves on the reaction end of development. And so the tool is really necessary to move community governments and developer into a more uh, of a partnership approach to making sure our communities benefit the people who've been invested in them for years, and particularly low-wealth communities, communities of color, and, and new Americans, as we call them here in the Twin Cities. I think it's also important to say that here in the Twin Cities, our Metropolitan Council, which is our regional planning organization, they have a definition for equitable development, but when people look at it, they say, well, that's great, but what does it mean specifically when a project lands on the ground and actually begins, all the elements start to come together? And our hope was that the tool helped people get more specific in the five different areas as a starting place to understand what are the specific elements of equitable development. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's about making sure that we move equity from a sort of buzzword into a real metric. Yeah, so why don't we talk about what are the five categories that are incorporated into the tool? So the five different categories are community engagement, land use, economic development, housing, and transportation. So the actual scorecard is six pages long. We wanted to keep it really straightforward, easy to read for everyday, ordinary folk in the community, in the neighborhood, as a starting place. So people aren't starting from scratch. They have a place to begin. And so each of those five categories has one page dedicated to it. We encourage people to... This is a, supposed to be a flexible tool. So we encourage communities to take out and add to it to make it relevant to the specific project that they're assessing and reviewing. Or if they're looking at a small area plan or if they're looking at a developer master plan for a larger site. Yeah, is there uh, underlying principles or values that drive the whole scorecard overall? Is there, are there a set of principles? 
Yes, essentially the overarching principle is that we believe that all public subsidies should result in concrete benefits to low-income communities of color and that they're part of defining what those benefits are. And then we have the principle of equitable community engagement requiring evidence that the communities have been involved early on in the process and in a powerful role in the decision-making and in the future should any changes happen. Land use is to reflect the community's assets and aspirations, their potential and preferences. Well, and I think that the sort of premise of why this is important and how it is that these principles came to be is that, I mean, more often than not, really, oftentimes our communities are faced with the potential for great growth or great destruction. Mm -hmm. And that when we have development or growth opportunities, we see that community members, whether we're talking about the elderly or the young or people of color or low-wealth communities or working class or however you want to define marginalized communities for your particular area, we find that people who have been invested for generations get pushed out. And so you might have a community such as we have in Twin Cities where the people who have been most impacted, the frontline communities, have been fighting for decades, you know, and oftentimes generations. And then you have big interest, particularly transit-oriented development, come in to the tune of several billions of dollars, and all of a sudden we see the cost of living really skyrocket. And so the community that fought for the benefits ends up being displaced by the development over time. And so the piece here is that the scorecard and the principles are meant to frame really the culmination of that fight to ensure that communities, which are actually the majority of this country, communities that are on the front lines, continue to benefit from all of the hard work that they've been doing to make sure that we have healthy, equitable, connected uh, neighborhoods across the country. It sounds like, a, you know, like an extremely valuable tool, right? There's a, there's a challenge when we're revitalizing communities. We want private investment. We need private investment for projects to be successful. But how do you find that right balance and get everybody on the same page so that the development benefits the folks who lived in the community for a number of years and doesn't just displace those folks? So how is this tool used? Is it is it used in a voluntary way or is it, you know, have some force of, of the governance in terms of approvals of projects? Do projects have to get a certain score? How does that play out? That's a great question, and it's sort of mixed depending on what sector you're in, right? So part of what we have is that, as Joan said, community is really encouraged to take the tool, tweak it, whether that's completely translating it into another language, which some groups like La Asamblea uh, here in the Twin Cities has done, completely translating it, cutting out a section or what have you for planning purposes or evaluation. We encourage that. On the other hand, we know that from a development standpoint and from a government standpoint, we need to have some very clear and uniform measures across the board. And so it is voluntary in a sense that it is only as successful as us applying it, right? We want people to willingly enter into the work toward equity in every community. And we know that there are times where private developers might want to move forward with a project that in the long run doesn't actually benefit the community. And we want to make sure that both the community and the government have the tools that they need and uh, very clear metrics to evaluate if we're going to see the long-term gain that is being proposed on the front end. So 
To give you an example, we have a community organization here in Harrison neighborhood that is looking at the creation of a homeless shelter because there's a new ordinance passed that would eliminate uh, access to homeless shelter. In order to move forward with some of their permitting processes, they actually have to have a letter of support from the neighborhood. So from a community standpoint, organizationally, we've been able to look at what it is that was requested of us by that private entity and look at what it is the neighborhood set that they want and then evaluate, well, where is it we want to be as a community? How does this play out in the grand scheme of the Twin Cities? And where can we measure this and then move forward with a letter of support? So from a community standpoint, we've been able to tweak it to for planning purposes and to evaluate But that's under the understanding that, at least the way that our cities work, there actually needs to be community support to move forward with a lot of the projects here. And I guess if we're really addressing government when we're saying whether it's voluntary or not, Mm -hmm. yes, it is a voluntary document. We've gotten feedback from cities and our Metropolitan Council and for profit and nonprofit developers that they appreciate having the tool So we're really seeing our work in the next year is getting everybody up to speed so that it's like priming the pump before the project even comes that they've got a starting place to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So the conversation is the really important part of the process. But one thing our MPO has done is included the scorecard in their work plan, and they've been looking at properties that they own in our region and looking at incorporating elements of the scorecard into the RFPs for development of those properties. In addition, our region is about to embark on a 10-year comprehensive planning process of 162 cities, seven counties. The scorecard that the MPO is coordinating that, and the scorecard will be included in the toolkit for that planning process. So that gives us as community advocates and people who really want to figure out how to leverage benefits for low-income communities and communities of color, a great lever across our region to have the conversation about making sure that public investments benefit everyone. That's fantastic. So, you know, as somebody who worked for a number of years in the private sector, real estate development world, I could see where this, as a developer, I would really appreciate this process. I think there are a lot of developers who are civic-minded and want to do the right thing, but often are not clear and afraid to engage the public because they they feel like they get lost in an endless loop of, I'm not sure what I need to do in order to get approval. So they tend to shy away from the process of engaging with people. To what degree was the development community involved in the creation of this tool? And and to what degree, I know you mentioned a little bit, but how have they embraced it? Well, this tool was really created by a group of grassroots community organization leaders from low-income communities and communities of color because they saw that the regional transit ways being built in the Twin Cities was leveraging billions of dollars in economic development. And they wanted to make sure that equity was included in the consideration on how those investments landed. So for-profit developers were not involved. Some very small nonprofit developers, CDCs, were involved in the 
actual writing. So this document was written by committee over about a year and a half, and based on research on other national models of principles of equitable development, but then we just are concluding a whole year of review. So we visited with the city of St. Paul, which is an urban city, and we visited with a suburban Twin City city. We got review from developers. We got review from community folks who are testing it out. And so this document looks very different from when it was launched in January 2015. And we just launched a 2.0 version. There are a number of for-profit developers throughout the cities that really resonate, as you've shared, really resonate with the principles. And so what we've been hearing is that people like the direction and are looking forward to hearing more about how to apply it. And so it's really significant that it'll be a part of this RFP process that Joan referenced earlier. Also, it's helping us to look at how we bring some restaurants and some light industrial job creation opportunities into our neighborhood. So we're getting a lot of great feedback. It seems like there hasn't been any opposition to the metrics that are in there, particularly around affordable housing, which is significant when we look at the transit-oriented development that we're facing right now. So all looks well, and we'll continue to really work in partnership. I think that it's been a great breath of relief for people that they're seeing that community is coming as a partner and not as an adversary in this process. And I think the true test of the success is the willingness on all parts, on all parties, to really invest the time to have that authentic conversation and that dynamic dialogue where community might have a vision. The developer knows how to realize a vision, and the government is providing, and also including planning expertise, but also providing investment so that people can end up with a project that everybody is proud of. And a project that works for everybody, that that lifts everyone up. So how can people learn more about the Equitable Development Principles and Scorecard tool? Well, there are several ways. You could go to hnampls.org slash scorecard. You can download both a PDF and a Word document. Also, uh, on that site, you'll find a form that you can fill out if you have questions, you want to get more information. You can also call any of our uh, organizations, the Harrison Neighborhood Association, the Alliance for Metropolitan Stability, or Emoja Community Development Corporation, and myself, Joan and Ishmael Israel would be happy to answer questions and also walk you through potential applications in your community. So uh, a question for each of you, maybe one at a time. Why is this work important to you? Tell us a little bit about your background and, and what motivates you personally to do this work. Well, this is Joan Van Hella. I'm a, I'm a coalition organizer. I work for a, a regional organization, but myself, I landed in my neighborhood in South Minneapolis as a homeless single mom and became a neighborhood organizer and recognized the value of policies that look out for all people versus policies that, whether intended or not, can create great harm in terms of poverty and can result in violence and even in death. And I've witnessed that in my neighborhood, all aspects of the struggle of being low income 
and trying to create a good life for yourself and your family to prosper into the future. I think that's the aspiration of all people, and all people should have that opportunity. What we're seeing, though, in our regional infrastructure is that there is baked in some structural racism that has not allowed everyone to prosper, and I think it's time to turn around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my passion and my drive for this work is really parallel to Jones in that I spent probably the last 15 years really in public health and policy work and understanding that so often people get sucked into these policy circles and very disconnected from local community and forget that the reality that we're all, you know, sort of operating under is that most of the policies and much of the interpretations of the Constitution are the result of anti-Native and anti-Black policies, particularly when it comes to housing. And so when we think about some of the efforts are like right to the city and and how it is we can move the country forward, we have to first really address the fact, the systemic racism, the individualized fear, the really strong classes-based realities that are put in front of us are meant to divide us, meant to make sure that we don't understand that, in fact, we're all subject to the same oppression in very different ways. And if we don't move through that, then development is really tough, right? Because we start to fight for our our individualized interests instead of our collective growth. And so as executive director at the Harrison Neighborhood Association, I really make an effort to prioritize what it is that we hear from community and to think about the practical ways that we can move into asset-based organizing and then maintain principles and values of sort of old-school community, right? When there is someone that was hungry, there are many generations of people who would get up and would, would make food for the entire block and sometimes the entire neighborhood so that the kids can eat. When people were out of work, there was always someone who was willing to open their doors and find an odd job to, to help someone put food on the table. And we've really gotten away from that, I think, as a country. And so my passion is, is, is really rooted in national policy, international policy, and public health, understanding that when community steps forward and leads the development of our neighborhoods, the development of our blocks, then everyone benefits. And that when we understand that most of us are actually working class, you know, there's a lot of conversation about being middle class. And I always say, if you can't survive a year without missing six months of paychecks, then the reality is that in a country of billionaires, we're actually working class, right? And so getting to the place where we understand that all of us are a part of a system of production and that part of that production has a result in development and we can move that together, then I think that we can break down some of the racist and classes divides and address the environmental degradation that have basically just about every community across the country has continued to experience over the last 200 or so years. Wow, those are those are great answers. So that's another, you know, essential ingredient to equitable development is that these are public resources. Mm-hmm. These are public tax dollars. All these communities pay quite a bit in taxes. In Absolutely. fact, when I was organizing in this neighborhood in South Minneapolis, paid as much taxes as a wealthy neighborhood because it was such a high rental mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. So the rental properties were really contributing to the tax base. And yet in terms of public investment, we were not receiving equitable public investment that reflected our contribution. 
So, yeah, it's definitely about who controls the resources and mm -hmm. how we can level the playing field out a little bit more. I think we're taking advantage of the political moment when our Metropolitan Planning Organization, the Metropolitan Council, is talking about equity. And when there are cities and counties across the country talking about equity as a way to address the disparities that weaken everybody and weaken our city and our country's infrastructure. So now is really the time to have this conversation and now is really the time to get involved and make sure that we are securing investments for our community. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a couple more questions. We call these lightning round questions. We're asking every guest basically the same version of these questions. And they're just designed for kind of short, quick answers. So I'll ask them one at a time, and maybe you can each take a crack at it. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? To me, it's about community engagement, the fun really having authentic community engagement where, you know, they say if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So if communities truly have a set at the table and they have the decision-making power as to where the investments could go, that would be my one vote. A national policy that would restrict any sort of housing costs, whether that's a mortgage rental payment, to no more than 30% cost burden based on the area median income. Great. Thank, thank you. So this question's geared more towards, you know, the average listener, the person who may not be in a position of power and just wants to do something. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? I would say get involved in your neighborhood organization. Get involved in the place that where you live. Placemaking is a powerful thing when it reflects the unique nature of the people who live there. I'd say organize your block, your neighborhood, your city, your municipality under a right to the city framework, something that really focuses on the reality that the majority of our neighbors are actually paying rent and a majority of our households are cost burdened. If you're successful in the work that you are doing, what does the world look like 30 years from now? Uh, let me just say, Harrison Neighborhood is surrounded by probably $3 billion worth of transit way that are being planned. I think that's an accurate mm -hmm. number. Yeah. So there's an LRT line that borders it on the south and an LRT line that borders it on the north. That's a different one. And then a arterial bus rapid transit system that's being planned to on its western border. So... There's some big changes coming to Harrison in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm an optimist, so 30 years from now, the people in my community would work in five miles of where they live and would earn family-sustainable wages and have the opportunity to engage in leisure activities and feel safe in their neighborhood. And for me, it would be that the income communities and communities of color along our planned transit ways stay and prosper and grow in their wealth and well-being for their families by being true participants in the economies that are growing around them. 
Fantastic. I want to be there in 30 years. <laughs> come on over. Well, come on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, I need to get involved now, not wait 30 years. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you guys are fantastic guests. Thank you very much Thank for, you for having us. this opportunity. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 